Good morning. It is great having you at Central Church today. It's a great day. The Egyptian way was if someone hurt you, well, you really hurt them. If someone harmed you badly, you killed them. If someone hurt your family, you wiped their family out. It was justice. It was violence. Retaliatory justice. That was the Egyptian way. So the Book of the Covenant comes along and says, no, 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 no. It's a reciprocal justice type of system. And so instead of, you know, you hurt me, I wipe out your family. No, you poke out my eye, I get to poke out your eye. You knock out one of my teeth, I get to knock out one of your teeth. Reciprocal, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And then along comes Jesus. You ever want to know how God responds, how God reacts, what God thinks? Along comes Jesus. You look at how Jesus responds and how Jesus acts. That's how God Almighty is. So along comes Jesus. And he says in Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Well, where did they hear that said? It was right there in Exodus chapters 20, you know, 21 through 25. That's where they heard it. You have heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You've heard it said. But what does Jesus say? But I tell you, Do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. Jesus dares to challenge the book of the covenant with his own authority. And so not as this retaliatory justice, no longer is it a reciprocal justice, Jesus offers this radical justice. It says, you know what? If your enemy pokes your eye out, guess what? You love that enemy. If that person persecutes you, guess what? You pray for that person. It's a radical justice that Jesus is offering here. You've heard it said, but this is what I tell you. So in order to understand, we talked about last week, in order to understand that book of the covenant, you needed to understand the the retaliatory justice of the Egyptian way. And to understand the Jesus, really, you needed to understand the reciprocal justice of the book of the covenant. Well, now to understand these instructions on the tabernacle, We've got to go back even farther. Not back to the Egyptian way. We've got to go all the way back to creation to really understand what's happening here. Now, we all know at creation, that with Adam and Eve, that was the greatest, the closest, the best, whatever you know, word you want to use to describe the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God Almighty before the fall. Can you just imagine being able to walk and talk with God. No barriers, no hidden agendas, nothing spoiled, uh, no distractions. Perfect, sweet, authentic, genuine relationship. Community. Remember, this series is called Captivity to Community. That's what we're working on. We can only imagine how that could have been, how, how awesome that must have been. But we know what happens. You know, they see the fruit, they pick the fruit, Eve gives the fruit to Adam, he eats the fruit. They are, you know, their eyes are open, they're naked and afraid. Adam and Eve are fruit. I'm, if Carla offered me a fruit, I gotta be honest, I probably wouldn't eat it. You know, she could say, she could say to me, I'm not a fruit guy. She could say to me, Rob, this is the greatest fruit, this is the greatest fruit ever, here, try it. I'll say, mm, I, I don't know. Now, if she offered me bacon, I'd be a goner. But Adam and Eve, you know, they're fruit people, and so they eat it, they sin, we know the the story, right? They hear the footsteps in the garden. Those steps that always brought them joy. 
Those steps that are always prior to this, always, they went, man, they ran toward those footsteps. But now they run away. And those footsteps that up until now had brought them joy and delight and glory, now they hear it and they run and hide. They're not the first people to think they could hide from God. Or they, they were the first people. They're not the last people. Let's get that straight. <laughs> first, last, you know what I mean. They run and hide. How do they think they could hide from God Almighty? They're still in the garden even. It's not like they you know, took off to New Zealand. They're still in the garden. And God comes in and they're hiding. It's almost like a toddler playing peekaboo. You know, if I don't see you, you don't see me. It doesn't work that way. And God calls out for them. You know, Adam, Adam, where are you? It's almost when you think about it, the omnipotent, omniscient God, he knows exactly where they are, right? He calls out to them, where are you? The psalmist said, said this, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to the heaven, you are there. If you're down in the grave, you are there. My legs are too short to run from God. That's what the idea is here. You know, where is he going to hide? It'd be, it would be funny if it weren't so sad. And so God says to him, where are you? Where are you? And, and Adam doesn't respond by saying, well, God, I'm in, I'm, I'm in the orchard behind the big rock. That's where I'm at. No, in Genesis 3, verse 10, he says, I heard you. I was afraid, I hid. First mention of fear in the Bible, right there. I was afraid. They had this sweet, wonderful, glorious fellowship, community, and it's ruined. Sin ruins everything. You think that, uh, that, that you, 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 no one else is hurt, that no one else is bothered, that no one else knows, sin ruins everything it ruined it here and the bible says so the lord sent so the lord god sent them out of the garden of eden where they would have to work the ground from which the man had been made then god put winged creatures at the entrance of the garden and a flaming flashing sword to guard the way to the life giving tree first mention of fear now they're out east of eden it's interesting that that phrase is often used when you go east of, of, of someplace in the Bible that's a place of disobedience. In fact, when Cain, you know, so Adam and Eve's vertical relationship with God has just been marred and, and forever uh, tarnished, but then that affects their, their horizontal relationships. You see it even in the next generation. Cain, as you know, kills Abel. And the Bible says this, but Cain had to go, to go far from the Lord and to live in the land of wandering which is east of Eden. East always is, is in the Bible, is a, a place of disobedience. Even when Jonah, when Jonah is running away from God, God said, go to Nineveh. He says, no, I'd rather go to Tarshish. Where is Tarshish? It is east. It's the farthest he could go, right? The ocean is right next to it in Spain. And so that's what happens. So God banishes them from the, from the garden. And they are, are, are wanderers and they're out. And the relationship is never, never, never the same and the and this community that they once had is totally and completely messed up the the communion that they had with god almighty is forever tarnished 
us included. And so the book of Genesis then is a story of God trying to renew that relationship. And it's mostly through individuals, Abraham, then Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And, and, and then the people, as you know, go into this 400 years of captivity in Egypt where they are influenced by this polytheistic, retaliatory justice system where Pharaoh is, is king and Pharaoh, his way goes and there's slavery and all the oppression and all the things that go along with it. And, they, and, and, and God hears their cries and he calls out to Moses and Moses goes and, and rescues them and that's chapters 1 through 15. And he goes up on the mountain and there's this, this power displayed with the thunder and the lightning as God gives the book of the covenant. And you remember last week, the people responded to that by saying, Moses, we're glad for you because, because we know how Pharaoh works and we know, but we, see, we know power when we see it and God Almighty is super powerful, way powerful than Pharaoh, so you do the talking for us. We don't, we don't want to talk to him. No way. He's too mighty, he's too powerful. We'll say the wrong thing. You be our mediator. That was last week. And Moses, you remember Moses saw them and said, listen, fear not. You don't have to be afraid. You need to, you need to fear the Lord. You need to have a reverent awe. You need to, to certainly respect God Almighty. But he is your protector. He's been protecting you, protecting you from Egypt. He's your provider. He's been providing for you manna and, and quail. He's, your, he's your, your providence and king. You can trust him. That's what Moses was telling them. And so we get to this passage, this passage that you might be tempted to think has no correlation to me and my life. 26 to 27, they're building this tabernacle, this glorified tent, if you will. And in this passage, he tells them all the details of, of, of how it's to be made and, and what's to go in it and, and, and how they're to treat it how the priests are to behave. One of my favorite passages is in in chapter 29. It's talking about Aaron and his sons. They're the high priests, right? And this is what it says. Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the ram. If If you're woozy by blood, then just, you know, plug your ears. Put the head on the ram, and then they shall kill the ram and take some of the blood and put it on the tip of their right ear, oops, right ear, and their right, tip of their right ear of his sons and on the thumb of their right hand and on the big toe of their right foot and sprinkle blood all around the altar. God cared about their big toe. Why in the world would God care about their big toe? I think what it's trying to communicate from the top of their heads to their tippy tippy toes, God wants you consecrated. God wants all of you is what he's trying to say to Aaron and his sons and that's what he's trying to say to us. God wants all of us, not part of us, not some of us, not us on, you know, for an hour on Sunday. God wants all of us, completely us, from the top of our head to our great big toe on our right foot. He wants all of us. But I think the passage that is most telling in this section is just a few verses down from that one in chapter 29, where God says this. I will dwell among them, in verse 45, I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. See, the first half of the book of Exodus, God is this anti-Pharaoh. Everything you think of Pharaoh, that's not how God Almighty responds. 
and, and he's this warrior king. He's the one that rescues them. He's the one that gets them out, and there's miracles, and, there's, and you know, he sends the plagues, and he splits the Red Sea, and they come through, and he's, ah, champion. But now, after the three chapters of getting to Mount Sinai, then going up on the mountain, and now this passage, God is not just the warrior king. Now he's the supreme indweller. I will dwell among the children and I will be their God. It's the same God. He's still mighty. He's still powerful. He's still champion. But now he's saying to these people who didn't even want to talk to him, remember? They wanted Moses to do the talking. Now to these people, he's saying, I want to dwell with you. I want to dwell in you. I want to be among the people. Remember, why did I talk all about Genesis? The whole point of that is that the last time, the last time God was dwelling with the people, this close relationship with the people, was all the way back to Adam and Eve. Ever since then, it's been marred, and God is saying, listen, it can't be just like Eden. It can't be, you're still living in this world with sin. It can't be perfectly like that, but I want to come and dwell among you with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He came to them, he spoke to them, he instructed them, he had a relationship, but it wasn't dwelling, not like what he's calling for here. And he knows these people. Ah, their faith is so flimsy. And so he says, all right, this is what we're gonna do. I wanna give you a visual reminder that I am with you. I'm not up on that mountain with the smoke and the thunder and the lightning. Let's build this tabernacle. And here's how you're gonna build it. And here's how it, how it needs to be. We're going to hit the reset button. And you're going to know that I am right in the middle of your community. And for you there to be community, I must be right in the middle of the community. And I am going to dwell among you. And so he gives instructions, right? And in Exodus 25, he tells them to, to get gold. It begins with gold. There's all these things that they need to bring to, to make the tabernacle. It begins with gold and ends with onyx. Now, people would miss the symbolism. Because way back in Genesis again, tells us that this in Genesis, in Eden, the gold of the land was good. The aromic resin and onyx are there. That's what he tells them. Bring gold, bring onyx. That's what's how we're going to build this, this tabernacle. And then, and then he, he tells them, you notice as he's giving instructions, doesn't this sound a little familiar? In chapter 25, he writes this, if I can find my place. He's talking about the lampstands and what the lampstands are going to look like and how the lampstands are going to be. And you'll, you'll see it says, and you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be hammered rock and it shall have branches, its bowls, its ornament knobs and flowers shall be in one piece and six branches are to come out of its side and three branches of the lampstand on one side, three branches of the lampstands on the other side. What does this sound like to you? This lampstand with all these branches and flowers and buds. Sounds like a tree to me. I think there's a tree in Eden. Wasn't there a tree in Eden? All of this, he's, he's, he's building this place and saying, we're hitting the reset button. And just as there was, just as I was among you then, just as I was dwelling then, just as there was this relationship then, I want it now. The people would miss seven times in this passage. The Bible says, and the Lord said to Moses, and the Lord said to Moses, and the Lord said to Moses, in Genesis account, seven times God says, and the Lord said, let there be, and it was. They wouldn't have missed the symbolism that God is going back and saying, listen, we're resetting this. I'm going to live among you. 
And they will know, verse 46, and they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of Egypt. They know these things. They know that God is God. God is almighty, way mightier than Pharaoh. He's the one that brought them out of Egypt. And then listen to this, that I may dwell among them. Not just in the tabernacle. Not just in that space. Don't make that mistake. He's not saying this is the only, but don't come, you know, shaking on the tent window to see if I'm around. (laughs) He says, that's a symbol. I will dwell among the people and I will be their God. You can count on me. The prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they go on and, and build on this language. They use the same language. And they say, I will be their God. And then God responds as well, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah does that three times. Ezekiel does that five times. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will be their God, and they shall be my... And that's what God is trying to build here. What is he building? It's this community. Right. A community where he is at the center a community where he is the focus, a community where he is the leader, a community like that had not been known since Eden. And God, the same God, the God who who rescued them out of Egypt, who split the Red Sea, who spoke to Moses on the mountain, is now saying, listen, I want to be among you. I want to be with you. I I am moving into your neighborhood. Does that language uh, sound familiar? It should. A couple of years ago, in the pandemic of all times, in 2020, our Advent series was, and the Word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. It was the, the, the passage that John uh, uh, Peterson, Eugene Peterson, uh, did for that passage in John chapter 1. The Word became flesh, moved into the neighborhood. And so we even put it on billboards on the highway on 75 and 69. We said the word became flesh and there was a picture of the nativity scene and moved into the neighborhood. And there was scenes of flint on the, and moved into the neighborhood. And that's exactly what God is saying here. He said, I want to be among you. I want to move into your neighborhood. You can trust me. The same God Almighty who rescued them, the same God Almighty who, who delivered them, the same God Almighty who sent, sent the plagues, the same God Almighty who was on the mountain with Moses with the lightning and the smoke and giving the, the Ten Commandments and all the rest and saying, listen, I'm not just up there. I'm not even just in the tower. I want to be among you. And that's what he's saying to us as well. We, who, we ordinary, going-through-life people. God is saying, I want to be in relationship with you. I want to move into your community. I want to be the center of your existence. That's what he's saying here. The, the author of Hebrews put it this way. For we don't have a high priest. Again, remember, they're talking about the high priest through all of this discussion in Exodus Uh, chapters 26 through 31. We don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace, not with worry, not with consternation, not with with trembling of, oh my land, he's going to wipe me out. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God has come to help his people. That's the point here. God wants to be among us. God wants to be with us. 
He knows what you're going through. He knows the struggles you have. He knows the problems you're dealing with. He knows what it is to deal with with troubled kids or aging parents. He knows what it is to have, have the situations that you are going through. And he's come to help you, not to leave you, not to let you just be. Of course, you know the rest of the story. You know, this was God's plan that, that he would be the center of their community and that they would recognize the holiness and the glory of God. But if you know your Old Testament, you know it just doesn't go that way. They, after this, they finally do get in the promised land. We're not, we're not going to get there in the book of Exodus, but the book of Joshua, they get into the promised land. And the people, they struggle, you know. They go through a time of judges, and then they clamor for a king, and then there's Saul and David and Solomon, and, and then there's a civil war, and, and the nation splits into two, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And they disobey God, both nations disobey God repeatedly over and over and over again. And finally... God says, I've had enough with the nation to the north, and, and he allows the Assyrians to come in and wipe them out. And then, and then he's had enough with the, with the children of, of Judah, and the Babylonians come in and wipe them out in 586, and they cart off the best and the brightest. And finally, a guy named Cyrus, Cyrus the Persian, he comes in and wipes out Babylonians and, and lets the people go back to Jerusalem, but it's in ruins. And then there's this quiet period for about 400 years, where the Greeks come in and then the Romans come in. And finally, 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 in God's perfect timing, he sends Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us, proclaiming again the same message. I have come to be with the people. I want to move into your neighborhood. You are not alone. You know, this past week, we had our 24-7 prayer last week, and if you were one of those people that prayed, you know, we have people in the building praying from two weeks ago Sunday to last Sunday. And I read over some of those prayers. And every year it seems like there's a common theme that goes through some of those cards. And it seemed to me the, the theme this year, some years it's one thing, some years, you know, it's other things. But this year it seemed to me anyway. Maybe it's just the cards that I picked up. But it seemed to me that the common theme was a, a deep loneliness and a longing for community, and a longing for what we're talking about even today. Help us, Lord. And it seems to me that, that part of that is, is, is on us as a church body that we work to, to, to help people to get connected. Certainly that's part of that is on us. But it really begins even back. It begins with that relationship with God Almighty the one who promises that he'd never leave you or forsake you, the one who you can trust always. When you have Jesus, you are never alone, no matter what's going on. Back back years ago now, when I was very first in Bad Axe, Michigan, I like to joke that I was a Bad Axe pastor. You have to say that carefully. It's true. I pastored in Bad Axe. And there was a nursing home um, just kind of around the corner from the church, Four Seasons Nursing Home. And I would go there every Thursday. And the, 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 the poor people at Four Seasons Nursing Home that would come down to the service were my guinea pigs each week. They would hear on Thursday what I was going to preach on, on Sunday. Now, half of them were sleeping and half of them, you know, whatever. But I would preach every week. And, we had a, 
uh, one of the residents could play the piano, sort of, and so she'd be on the piano, and they had a, a hymn book that consisted of 15 songs that was in, you know, the wide print so everyone could read it. And so we had a choice of 15 songs every week. I was the song leader, the preacher, the you name it what. And we had the old lady on the piano. And every single week, they'd bring those folks down there and some were in wheelchairs and some could walk. And one of the people there was a lady named Tessie Shepherd. Um, Tessie had a stroke when she was young. And so she had very garbled speech. There's Tessie. She had very garbled speech. A lot of people couldn't understand her. You had to be around Tessie a lot to pick up what she was saying. I don't know how many years she spent in that nursing home. But I know this. Every week, without fail, without fail, I'd say, who's got a song they'd like to sing today? They only had 15 choices. So you figure, you know, we'd recycle the 15. You'd, if we sang three a week, that meant, you know, every five weeks we'd hit all of them and then we'd start again. But not for Tessie. Because every single solitary week she'd raise her hand and in her garbled, garbled speech would say, I want to sing what a friend we have in Jesus. Hallelujah. And every week, We'd sing it for Tessie. Because, see, Tessie understood one thing. Yes, yeah, she, was, she was living in a nursing home. She had a tough life. Her speech was gone. Most people couldn't understand her when she talked. But she knew that there was one that understood every single word she said. And there was one that was with her no matter where she was at. I love that picture because she's holding her Bible. Why? Because it mattered to her. Because Jesus was with her. The one who moved into the neighborhood was with her at the Four Seasons Nursing Home every day.